If you like true crime stories, you will want to check out the True Crime Garage podcast. They feature a new case and true crime story each week. True Crime Garage has been around since 2015, so they have hundreds of episodes to download and listen to for free. Featuring cold cases, missing persons cases, and serial killer profiles, you are sure to enjoy True Crime Garage. Available now for free wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to Campus Killings, brought to you by Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, DNA ID, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Citizen Detective. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. This episode takes us to the University of Alabama, Huntsville, where a biology professor buckles under the pressure of tenure. A similar version of this episode can be found on our other podcast, Women in Crime. If you're interested in hearing more about this story with a focus on criminological theories, please join us there. Amy was born April 24, 1965, to parents Judy and Sam. She was born in Iowa City, Amy's father, Sam, was a graduate student who was studying fine arts at the University of Iowa. Now, Judy, her mother, was originally from New Hampshire, and Sam, her father, was also from the New England area as well. The two had met at the New England School of Art in Boston. In early 1968, the family moved to Braintree, Massachusetts, which is a nice community about 10 miles south of Boston. Now, I'm not positive, but I believe the move was prompted by Sam getting a teaching job in the art department at Northeastern University. Random fact about Braintree is that Presidents John Adams and John Quincy Adams were both born there. Oh, I love it. Yeah, fun fact. You know I love my fun fact. I know you do. Now, the family fit right in. Judy was very involved in the community. She was very likable. Sam excelled at work. Everything was going great for the family. And about a year later, when Amy was less than four years old, the family welcomed a baby boy named Seth. Now, Amy was a high achiever. She was an accomplished violinist, and she took a strong interest in the sciences. Now, reportedly, this was because she had severe allergies and suffered asthma in childhood, and she was determined to find a cure for her ailment. Wow. So her and her brother, Seth, got along very well, and Amy would often dote on her younger brother. They were quite different, however, because Seth was outgoing and athletic. Amy, by all accounts, was shy and described more as a loner. But overall, you know, the bishops were a happy, well-adjusted family. Now, this was until there was an event that would cause a shift. On December 6, 1986, the family returned home to find that their home had been broken into. The house was ransacked. There were several significant items missing, such as Judy's wedding ring and two silver cups that commemorated the births of Seth and Amy. You know, like cups that would say like the baby's name and like date of birth. Okay. As expected, you know, the family had a really hard time coping with this event. Judy even wrote letters to the local paper begging for the return of these items. It seems strange because there were a lot of valuables that were still in the house and just certain items that were missing. But, you know, either way, you know, it did go unsolved. Okay. The children slept with the parents afterwards. Everyone was just on edge. 
So much so that Sam went to a nearby town and purchased a 12-gauge shotgun, vowing to protect his family. Now, the weapon was kept unloaded in Sam's bedroom closet with a box of shells on a nearby dresser. And reportedly, both Amy and Judy were not happy with this purchase. They didn't feel comfortable with having a gun in the home. Right. A little bit over a year later, after this event, on December 6, 1986, 911 received a call from the Bishop home. This call was placed by Judy, and she was frantically reporting that her daughter, Amy, who was now 21, had shot her son, Seth, who is now 18. Right, I remember this. Being that the police station was just under a mile from the home, the police were there within minutes. And they were greeted by Judy at the front door, who had spots of blood on her clothes. Now, Judy told the police that there had been an accident and she witnessed the whole thing. She told the officers, quote, Amy said to me, I have a shell in the gun and I don't know how to unload it. I told Amy not to point the gun at anybody. But as Amy swung the weapon around to show it to her brother, the gun fired. The kitchen was small and Amy had been standing very close to her brother and essentially hit Seth point blank. So she put the shell in. She did. Correct. Yeah. That doesn't look good. I mean, I guess the question is, why was she putting... That's my point. Why was she? Yeah. Why did she put a shell in the unloaded yeah. weapon that she yeah. didn't yeah. want to use? Yeah, yeah it, it's unclear why she was messing around with the gun to be in Okay. But another shot was fired, I think, in her bedroom, like hitting the wall. So she was clearly like playing around with the gun. So she hit him point blank. Did he die? I don't remember. Judy directed EMS workers to the kitchen where Seth was on the floor bleeding to death from a chest wound. Wow. Some say that Judy acted very strange because rather than comforting her son in his final moments, she sat there speaking with the EMTs. But we always say you cannot judge people's reaction to traumatic events. No. So where's Amy? Yeah. Amy Amy was nowhere to be found on the property. She ran off. She had actually gone to a nearby auto shop. It was like an auto shop slash dealer and demanded that they give her a car. She still had the loaded gun or she still had the gun. And she was pointing it at these men and said that she had gotten in a fight with her husband and she needed a getaway vehicle. That seems like an attempted robbery to me. (laughs) Pointing a gun, demanding a car. Is that not an attempted robbery, right? Yeah, I mean, that's not okay. (laughs) Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, so luckily the men were able to get away from the situation, call the police. The police soon arrived and Amy pointed her firearm at the police and would not drop it when they demanded her to drop it. Luckily, another officer came from behind and was able to retrieve the gun. I've seen a series of felonies here, but yeah, okay. Yeah, so Amy, throughout the whole ordeal, by all eyewitnesses, she was described as catatonic and expressionless. Mm. Now, believe it or not, she was not immediately questioned. She had been, quote, released to the custody of her parents with further investigation to follow. Get out. Yes. That was the 80s, right? Mid-80s. I wonder if that had anything to do with it. That's very strange to me. Okay. So it was ultimately concluded by both investigators and by the DA that Seth's death was the result of, quote, the accidental discharge of a firearm. And I've never heard anything about the fact that she held up these men with a gun or wouldn't drop the gun. So no punishment for her, essentially. No punishment. And life went on for the bishops. Wow. I mean, of course, Amy seemed different. Some say she felt guilty. However, she always maintained that it was a horrible accident. Okay. And she never received any counseling. And the family stayed in the home in which their son bled out on the kitchen floor. I I don't think I could do that. So I know your wheels are turning already. I know. You see me on my eyes. I'm like, hmm. And believe it or not, we haven't even gotten to today's story. I know. This is just the background. I know. Okay, so what happened? Amy moves on. She excels in school. She attended Northeastern. And she put all her energy into her studies. And she did very well. While she was in school, she met Jim Anderson. Now, he was a fellow student at Northeastern, 
and they met in a campus group devoted to Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, gosh, I remember Do that. Do you remember yeah. Dungeons and Dragons? I do. I was never into it, but I yeah, remember. Yeah, so it was popular during the late 70s and the early 80s. And actually, it kind of reemerged during COVID. Did you know this? No. With like people playing on Zoom and, you know, Skype and other uh, platforms. That makes sense to me. But for people who don't know, it's a tabletop game, like not a video game. And it's kind of a role-playing game where everyone works together to create an imaginary adventure. Right. The two bonded over that. They dated for a few years and got married in 1989. And just one year prior, she had began her graduate studies working towards a PhD in genetics at Harvard. That's an impressive resume. She's clearly smart. While in school, she gave birth to her first daughter in 1991, and two more daughters would soon follow. In 1993, Amy received her PhD from Harvard and had begun her postdoctoral work at the Harvard School of Public Health. Okay. In 2001, Amy had her youngest and final child, a son they named Seth. Oh, Yes, so they named their son after her deceased brother. Right. You want to hear something crazy? He was born on what would have been her brother's 33rd birthday. Really? So they have the same birthday. Wow. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Amy struggled to keep up with a demanding job and raise her children. And while Jim was a supportive husband, he did not contribute financially, which left the burden all to Amy. What did she do? What did she do? Was she still in her postdoc then? She was still in her postdoc. Yep. So apparently, according to Amy, Jim was, quote, too smart to work. So Jim stayed home with the kids and worked on some, you know, inventions and was working to get patents on some things. But he was providing the childcare. Yep. Yeah. Okay. In 2003, Amy got a job offer at the University of Alabama, Huntsville, as a tenure-track neurobiology professor. As a result, the family relocated from Massachusetts to Alabama, and things were looking good because they would finally have financial stability. Mm -hmm. Quite a change, though. Yes. In Alabama, Amy and Jim spent a lot of time working on a patent for an automated cell incubator. This is a bit problematic, though, because Amy was pursuing patents rather than writing journal articles, making her publication record scarce. Uh, well, we know how important that is in academia. For those of you who don't know, University of Alabama Huntsville is an R1, which is a research one school, which means that there's a very high research activity. In these R1 schools, most resources go to science and research, mm-hmm. meaning that they expect their faculty to continually publish. And in order to get tenure, you have to have a strong publication record. Right. Now, she was allegedly given repeated warnings that failing to publish could jeopardize her prospects for tenure. But it seems as if she just kind of ignored that. Like I, I remember this mm-hmm. the backdrop to this yeah. event. And in addition to her subpar publication record, many students would complain over the years and would ask to be transferred from her classes. So we're talking about, you know, she doesn't have a publication record and she also has complaints from students. Now, in the spring of 2009, to no one but Amy's surprise, she was denied tenure. Now, she was shocked and angered and she actually appealed many times, even hiring a lawyer at one point. Now, what is not receiving tenure actually mean? So when you get tenure in teaching, it essentially means job security for as long as you would like, provided that, you know, you don't commit a felony or do something, you know, it's essentially guaranteeing that you will stay at that university and remain there for the remainder of your career if you choose. Which is not always the best policy because some people get lazy when they get tenure. Yeah, no, I don't, I mean, I don't know that I, I agree uh, that tenure is the best policy. I always think about this, like in other jobs, in other fields, you don't have job security for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. It's meritorious. So, you know, I think there's definitely downsides to tenure. Yeah, and you and I both know that there are people that once they get tenure, they just stop doing things. Slack a little bit, yeah. yeah. 
I mean, the original purpose of tenure was to protect academics, right? From like, uh, you know, kind of a cancel culture, Mm -hmm. um, being able to speak out, you know, freely without repercussion or losing their jobs. So it's one of those things where I all like, you know, a lot of well-intended policies just have some, you know, unintended consequences. So I don't know that people realize, but basically if you are denied tenure, you have a terminal year which is really a year to wrap things up and look for a new job. Yeah, and by the time that you've spent at that university, other employers will pretty much be able to, you know, figure out that you were denied tenure because, you know, there's a certain amount of times, usually like five or six or seven years. And if you're leaving a university after that time, it's then obvious that you've been Mm -hmm. denied tenure, which... I mean, that doesn't mean that you can't get a job and still a good one, but uh, it might not help with your job prospects. And it's embarrassing. It is. It's hard. It's very hard. I mean, we've both been through the process and the idea of working so hard. And I'm not saying she because she I'm sure she worked hard in her own right, whether she was working on the right things for what she needed for tenure. But to work hard and then be denied and almost have to start over in your careers. The tenure process is grueling. Even if you have like you and I both had, we knew we had the requirements Mm -hmm. met, but just getting it all together and submitting all the information. It's a lot. Mm hmm. As I mentioned, Amy was angry. She was shocked. On several occasions, she demanded to speak with the president and saying she wouldn't leave until she spoke to the president. There was like a police escort situation at one point. Wow. So she was clearly not taking the news well. No. Nobody could have predicted just how well she was not taking the news, however. Friday, February 12th, 2010 began like any other day for Amy. She taught her usual classes that day. She taught a class on anatomy and then a class on neuroscience. Around 3 p.m., she joined her colleagues for a department meeting in the science department, where there were 12 other people in attendance. Now, these were all faculty and staff from that department. We know these meetings very well. Oh, we sure do. Yeah. So they're usually, you know, just to talk about what's going on, usually plan for the next semester. And, you know, it's nice because you get to see your colleagues. But, you know, like any other meeting, people are you know not thrilled. So that day at that meeting, Amy's demeanor was a little bit different than it had been in prior meetings. She was normally very outspoken Actually, some would say argumentative, but on this occasion, she was very quiet and reserved. Some attendees of the meeting speculated that she probably just didn't have much to add, given that this would be her last semester at the university. And a lot of this conversation was planning for the next semester. Oh, that must have... I'm shocked that they even made her go. I I was thinking the same thing, how uncomfortable. Yeah. So for close to an hour, Amy sat quiet until just as the meeting was concluding, she stood up, pulled a 9mm gun out of her purse, a Ruger semi-automatic, and shot her department chair in the head. Wow. Yeah, and she fired again, aiming at the department assistant. Next, she turned and shot a colleague who was a cell biologist. Then she turned the gun on another colleague and shot her. So this would be the fourth person to be shot. Now, at one point during the chaos, Amy's colleague and friend, Deborah dived under the conference table And essentially was like putting her arms around Amy's legs, begging her to stop, saying, Amy, please don't do this. Think of my family. And Amy looked down and pulled the trigger. Wow. Luckily for this woman, however, the gun had jammed. And Amy tried several more times to shoot her and the gun continued to jam. Now, everyone in the room was in shock and started to panic. Of course, some people screamed and ducked and others froze. Of course. Now, Amy was blocking the only door out of the room, but Deborah the friend who was just begging for her life, had managed to get past her. And as Deborah tried to get past her, Amy's still trying to fumble with the gun because it was jammed. So Deborah runs into the hallway and Amy followed her continuously clicking the trigger, but luckily the gun was still jammed. Wow. Now at this point, Deborah somehow managed to get back into the conference room and with the help of others who were not too badly wounded, 
They barricaded the door, and Amy was unable to get back in. Wow. This is when reality set in, and it was realized that Amy had shot six people, three of them fatally. Oh, my God. Yeah. And this whole episode lasted less than a minute. Wow, okay. Yeah, so at this point, you know, Amy probably felt like her job was done. She couldn't get back in the room. So, you know, instead of trying to fight to get back into the room, she went into a restroom where she cleaned herself up, rinsed off the gun, took off her bloodstained blazer, stuffed the gun into her blazer, and then threw it in the trash can. Where did she go? Well, as if nothing happened, she entered a nearby science lab and asked the student if she could borrow their cell phone, and she called her husband, Jim. What did she say? So Jim usually had picked her up from class. I don't know if they shared a car or if Amy didn't drive, but normally Amy would call Jim and say, you know, come pick me up. So on this occasion, she called Jim and told her husband, quote, I'm done. And he headed to get her, not having any idea what had happened. Of course not. So Amy left the building through like one of those loading docks in the back of a building. And that's where she was met by a sheriff's deputy who immediately apprehended her. Okay. Now, upon arrest, Amy exclaimed, quote, it didn't happen. There is no way. When asked about the death of her colleague, she said, quote, there's no way they are still alive. So she's in denial right now. Either in denial or faking being in denial. Yeah. So Amy was held, not surprisingly, without bail, and she was charged with one count of capital murder. Now, capital murder means that it's a death eligible crime. In Alabama, one of the aggregating factors for capital murder is the murder of two or more individuals. Got it. And in Alabama, of course, this is the most serious offense, which is considered a class A felony, which carries 10 years to life and, again, possible death penalty. Okay. She was also charged with three counts of attempted murder. Now, police were wondering if Jim knew about what was going on. So, of course, they interviewed him and they quickly determined that, you know, he really didn't know what was going on. There was absolutely no evidence that he knew anything. It was his gun, though, and he did go to a shooting range with Amy a few weeks prior. But I I don't think that I don't think that means anything. The next morning, the sheriff's department received an interesting phone call. It was the chief of police from Braintree, Massachusetts, saying, quote, the woman you have in custody, I thought you'd want to know, she shot and killed her brother back in 1986. Right. I I think once the police in Massachusetts found out about this, they started putting things together like, oh, this isn't the first time this woman was violent. Yeah. Two days later, Amy attempted to take her own life, but she was given medical attention and she had survived. And this was while she was in jail. On September 24th, 2012, Amy pled guilty and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now, interestingly, this was after she had withdrawn an earlier plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. I thought she was going to go for the insanity. So she did, but then they withdrew it. Have you heard about this process of changing a plea? Like any idea why they may have withdrawn the early plea and have just decided to plead guilty? They took the death penalty off the table. They did, but remember, if somebody has found not guilty by reason of insanity, then they are often confined to a mental health facility rather than a prison. Yeah, but if they didn't buy it, if the jury doesn't buy it, then that that doesn't prevail. But maybe she didn't want to go to a mental health facility. Well, and also people believe that the insanity defense is used often and often successful for what we see in popular media. However, it's only used 1% of the time and it's only successful in about a quarter of the cases. So it's not easy to be found not guilty by reason of insanity. So what's the reason she changed her plea? That is unknown, but it seems to me that they didn't have the clear and convincing evidence to establish the insanity defense. Okay. Amy filed an appeal on February 11th, 2013 on a few grounds. Now, one being... Hold on. She's appealing, but she's pled guilty. 
Yeah. Okay. I, I'm just thinking, you know, when people are appealing, it's usually because they have issues during trial. Well, listen to what she was appealing. Right okay. Now. All right. And then I'll tell you why she didn't win. But you're on the right track. So one of the grounds was that she was not informed of the rights that she would be waiving by pleading guilty. Oh, I see. Okay. And she also right. says she was not correctly informed of the minimum range of punishment and that the circuit court had failed to explain that she could withdraw her plea. Okay. That makes sense. Now. Yeah. A few months later, in April of 2013, the Court of Criminal Appeals of Alabama rejected the appeal, stating that Amy failed to challenge the validity of her guilty plea in the circuit court. Okay. Through Amy's lawyer, there was a statement that she had wanted to be tried for her brother's death. Because remember, that's still on the table as well, because she said she wanted to vindicate herself because she always maintained her innocence, saying that it was an accident. And she believed if the case did go to trial, that she'd be able to prove her innocence. Okay. However, the police in Massachusetts did decline to seek her extradition for her brother's death. All right. Because there's no point, I don't think. It seems like she's already life without parole. I, I wouldn't think so either, but... If an appeal does prevail at some point, you know, I would assume that's the reason why, again, when someone's found guilty, that yeah. you go for other convictions. In case yeah, they, but maybe they felt like this was a slam dunk. I don't know. Okay. Who knows? Or maybe they didn't have the evidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like although it may have been a situation that might not seem accidental, I don't see the evidence that would have held up in court. Yeah, I agree. Amy is currently serving her time at an Alabama state women's prison, which is a max security and houses the state's death row population. She's 57 years old, and she holds the title of the first academic in U.S. history to be accused of gunning down fellow professors. Yeah, I think I knew that. I'm not sure that there's been any since. I know that there have been threats, but I have not come across any cases since in which a professor harms fellow professors. I'm not exactly sure how Amy's spending her time in prison, but there was a report of her being assaulted a few years back. Not sure what the circumstances were. By an inmate or? By an inmate, yeah. So what's going on with Jim and the children? According to an interview with Jim about two years ago, he says that he is still married to Amy, but this is purely for financial reasons. Now, the children are all adults, and he says that they don't visit often. What do you mean financial reasons? Just saying divorce, it's cheaper to stay married than get divorced. I mean... I, I don't understand. That was just what he was quoted saying. Okay, fine. So, remember, she had four children. Yes. Unfortunately, on April 19th, 2021, her young son, Seth, died. Oh, no, of what? Yeah, he died from a gunshot wound. It's unclear the circumstances around this, but the media was quick to point out the irony yeah because amy had killed her brother seth by firearm and then her son seth who shares the same birthday with her brother what a tragic irony it's very tragic he had died from a gunshot wound and it seems as though a friend or an acquaintance had shot him and it seems accidental like they were charged with reckless manslaughter very cruel twist it's eerily similar right yeah oh that's very sad yeah Okay, let's talk about some, you know, in hindsight, right? So we can always look back and say, you know, were there warning signs? Were there red flags? Other than the death of her brother, there were actually some other strange incidents or what some might call red flags. I think I remember one of these, but go ahead. Yeah, so in 1993, Amy's postdoctoral advisor at Harvard, she apparently had a dispute with him. Now, it's unclear what the dispute was about, but he did receive a suspicious package in the mail one day, not long after their dispute. He had opened it carefully because the Unabomber was active around the time that he received this. Right. And he saw that there was a trigger mechanism attached to a pair of pipe bombs. So he so, received a pipe bomb in the mail? He received a pipe bomb in the mail. 
Now, Amy and her husband were questioned by ATF because through investigation, I guess they asked this gentleman, do you know of anyone that would want to harm you? And I guess he gave their name. Law enforcement interviews at the time revealed that Amy and Jim had spoken to friends about how one might build a pipe bomb, but they were never charged and the case remains unsolved. I don't like that. Yeah. So who who knows? We, we don't yeah, have right. the evidence, but it, I don't like it, though. Yeah. Then there was an incident. I'm sure you've heard of this one, the IHOP incident. Yes, this is and, the one I know yeah. about. Okay. In 2002, the Bishop family went to IHOP and they had requested a booster seat for their youngest son, Seth. So a waitress had told them, you know, I'm sorry, but we don't have any. We had just given away the last one to this other right. child. Amy got very angry and yells, you know, we were here first. Yep. That should be my booster seat. You would think it would end there. But she then approached the woman whose child had the booster seat and screamed, quote, I am Dr. Amy Bishop. A manager had asked her to leave the restaurant, and she did comply. However, she did walk back in, punching the woman in the head. Yep, I remember. That's the one. And Amy was arrested, but the charges against her were dropped, and this never appeared on her permanent record. We see time and time again, over the course of her life, bad behavior going unpunished. Yes. Okay, Megan, as we often do in campus killings, let's talk a little bit about maybe how this could be prevented, or what can be done to prevent this from happening again in the future. Mm Mm-hmm. Sorry, this one's a little different because it involves a professor. Exactly. So I don't think the action items are as strong as maybe some of the other ones, but it does bring up some interesting questions. What is the university or college's responsibility when it comes to the mental health of their employees? It was clear that there were many red flags in Amy's behavior that was ignored and a lot of time by her colleagues. I'm not saying the burden should be on all of us faculty. Right. However, when you work with someone and you're used to seeing them day in and day out, you know best how they are acting. You know best if something seems off. I think it's important that we support each other, support our colleagues more by checking in with them and reporting something if it doesn't seem right. I would have to agree with that. Before you came on, I had a situation as well with another employee that required me to confer with a department chair about this employee's behavior and what we should do, if anything. So there are times where we can intervene. When we have students who display troubling behavior, it's our responsibility to bring that to the attention of administrators on campus. So I think we need to do the same for our colleagues as well. And I think the university or the college also should provide some support to faculty during times of high stress or during high pressure times in academia. As you and I both know, going up for tenure and promotion is extremely stressful. Extremely. And the result for us was positive. I can't imagine the, you know, the opposite. If, you know, we had not been granted that the type of stress we would have felt, though, in fairness, Amy Bishop had, a you know, a serious history, I think, of this type of behavior and mental health issues. But this event definitely was kind of the, almost like the straw that broke the camel's back, I think. And I, I'm not sure that it's good policy for her to have been invited to the department meeting when it was clear that she was not returning. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. Um, Department meeting, especially hers, was about the following year. So having her sit there with every colleague knowing that she had not been tenured and, and, you know, her feeling sort of anguish and angry, I don't think that's the best policy going forward either. We also don't know exactly what transpired. Perhaps she was told she didn't have to come and she insisted on saying goodbye to her colleagues. We don't know. But I think the point here is that we need to be more sensitive to some of these stressors and pressures that we have in higher education. I agree that some of your suggestions could definitely help on the the preventive side. And I think it's important to be sensitive to both students and faculty. 
Thank you for listening to our bonus episode and join us next time for a full episode on campus killings. Campus Killings is hosted by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg with research and writing by Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to follow Campus Killings on social media. You can find Campus Killings on Twitter with the handle at Campus Killings or on Facebook by searching for Campus Killings Podcast. Be sure to tune in every other Saturday for new episodes of Campus Killings.